This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. Teal Talk Radio, Season 7, Episode 21. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 21 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Mike Kleba and Dr. Ryan O'Hara, authors of Otherful, How to Change the World Through Other People. Mike is a public high school English teacher and theater director with more than 20 years in the classroom. An artist and entrepreneur, he's been invited to speak about leadership around the country and the globe. He holds degrees from Villanova University and Duquesne University. Ryan is a district administrator for a K-12 public school district. Before moving into educational leadership, he taught high school and middle school English for 10 years. He holds degrees from St. John's University, Stony Brook University, Long Island University, and Hofstra University. So welcome to the podcast, Mike and Ryan. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to have you here. Let's get our conversation started this morning with a personal story about Otherful. What led both of you to author this book for educational leaders? Well, I I think uh, for Ryan and me, we, we, we met the... We met as teachers, fellow teachers, uh, a number of years ago, and we just found ourselves enmeshed in faculty meetings where the school leadership was saying that teachers should do something that they themselves weren't doing in the faculty meeting. So we would attend faculty meetings where had I'd run my class the way the faculty meeting was run, I would have been written up for it. And yet there was no connect at all. It was just this weird kind of like, puppet show of do what we say, but don't do what we do. And it wasn't personal. I mean, at times we were just like, you know, I'll speak for me. I was frustrated with the leadership, but ultimately I just thought this disconnect should be examined. (laughs) Let's just look at it and, and explore maybe the possibility that there are ramifications to this disconnect that might find their way through the whole school. And so Ryan and I began a conversation years and years ago about, you know, that started ostensibly of how do you become a better teacher? And it led to 
what would happen if we explored how to lead schools better so that we could support teachers who were doing the great work. And that's, that's how Otherful began. You know, how do you, how do you help the teachers who are doing the leadership? So yeah, this conversation happened at the same time. Uh, like Mike said, we were, we were doing great work experimenting with each other uh, in, in our work on how to, you know, how to help kids in the classroom, how to help them become better writers, all of this. And then at the same time, uh, it happened in our district that we had, I think, six different um, English supervisors in in the span of eight years, um, and a number of principals. And five. Uh, so, yeah, five different principals. That's which that is a number. Well. We also began to recognize how we felt about each of these uh, different different uh, leaders in their ability to work with and help us, uh, and what made us feel supported and not, and began to really reflect on that, and then think about what that meant for the work that we were doing with with uh, students in the classroom. And so then we kind of began thinking on this. Um, and uh, we actually include at the very beginning of our book, a little, mm -hmm. a little like uh, screenplay, and, and it's trying to capture what happened over a bit more time as if it happened in one conversation. But uh, we did talk about, well, should we become involved in leadership then? Um, but then wondered if we become involved in leadership and we're out of the classroom, is it ever, are we ever able to hold on to everything that we had when we were in there? What would that look like? And we actually made a decision, uh, you know, to stay and to go and, and to continue the dialogue. I think in reading in reading the book that disconnect is the thing that really resonated with me. So you've identified this pain point that we have here in education, and then you decided, hey, we're going to write a book about it. And tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about organizing that book so that it resonated with the readers. It was always about uncovering what was there. You know, I don't think either of us set out to try to state something. You know, one of the metaphors we like to use is kind of the difference between sculpture and art and uh, archaeology. You know, we we weren't interested in trying to build something new. We just kept trying to brush away what wasn't a part of, you know, what are the fundamentals of teaching and leadership? And I think one of the <clears throat> presuppositions that we kept testing was what is the difference between teaching and leadership? And frankly, we still don't see a whole lot of daylight between them that the great work of leadership and the great work of leader of teaching is one and the same and that is that there's a relationship there and studying what the relationship is between a leader and a follower or a teacher and a student um it, it there are uh fundamentals to it um so we came up with a framework and the framework was something that truly it it evolved i should say it emerged out it was almost like we were exhuming it um ryan why don't you take a second and talk to us about you know maybe uh, one or two of those, um, one, one or two of those in the framework. As Mike said, we were just trying to look really closely at, at what we observed and, and uh, think about that against our, our shared reflection and experience, what we read, what we heard other people say. Um, and then certain things started to resonate that rang true. And we found that they weren't true just in our experience, but we began to see, oh, other people have been saying this. And you'll see, we worked pretty intentionally in the book to include, um, quotes from uh, pop culture, literature, ancient texts, uh, because you see that people are people are pinging on this thing. And we did our best to to um, explain what it was that we saw. So one example of that, um, which emerged to us was this distinction between natural accountability, uh, which we call it an artificial accountability. 
and artificial accountability is this idea. I mean, the easiest way to describe this is like how you see um, a student go after something when they really see the value in it and are like psyched about it and want to do great work or how they do it when they do it because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble with their parents or get a bad grade, right? Um, when, they, when they go after the thing because they see it themselves, that's natural accountability. Artificial accountability is when they do it because they're, they feel like they're being coerced or rewarded into doing this thing. And, um, and we found that this, uh, this uh, distinction wasn't necessarily being stated that way, but, uh, but was often, um, often spoken of in, in lots of things that we saw. Uh, and we tried to flesh out what was that, how can we describe that? Um, and this was our starting point. This, this was the beginning of the rest of the framework. Now, everybody's talked about the difference between internal and external motivation. Nothing new to uncover there. And when you really dig into the work of like how people are moved and whether you're getting into self-determination theory or you want to talk about mindset, all of these things that people have talked about, even start with why to pick a big cultural touchstone. You know, all of it is about, what, you know, where are you being driven by, right? And, and, and what we found is that everyone is accountable to themselves first and always, and they're never not accountable to themselves. So every attempt to try to bring people to a different type of accountability is inherently um, a disjointed process. You're pulling somebody from what they're doing rather than engaging them in what they themselves are already doing. So once we explored that, we got the language of accountability. Ryan came up with the notion of natural versus artificial accountability. It felt like a really big breakthrough to both of us because it felt like, hang on, it, this isn't about motivation. It's actually about how you do things because you feel like you should do them. We're always driven by what we think we should do. Even if we think we should lie, or we think we should stay in bed, or we think we should blow off that meeting, <laughs> or we think we should, you know, put it on mute and talk to our kid for a second. Like that's, that's how we're driven. So then from that thusly, you know, came these other pieces, uh, this notion of uh, conspiracy and this notion of contexting and those spoke to how we attended to this undeniable truth about uh, accountability natural and artificial it's so interesting to see the synergy you have and um the fact that you've you started working together and you're continuing to work together in different roles it brings unique lens to your work you know the school the school leader informal leadership in a school setting and more formal leadership um through the administrative role. So it's interesting to see those lenses kind of um, merge for this work. And in this work, you have created this, this book that's filled with principles that readers can really grasp onto. So maybe would you be willing to share a couple of those principles? What are a couple of your favorites? Um, maybe a, a principle or two each and an example. You know, uh, I appreciate too that you're just saying um, we tried to give examples people could dig right into. Uh, what we found the more too we talked and looked at leadership literature is that um, when we would think about those things um, that we were being presented in a new nomenclature and things that often we made sense of them through what we already had and, and, the, and the touchstones uh, in our understanding of the world that we already had. And so we also sought to create a book that uh, took that way into um, 
into the work. So you'll see if you look at the end of our book, it's listed all of these references to all of the underlying organizational learning theory um, and everything that um, all of the research that would support the assertions that we make. But we made a point of not making that where we start the book. We believe that if folks read this, saw things that resonated with them and said, oh, that they could go to further readings and then find their way into how other, uh, other folks have mapped and labeled uh, that terrain. So, um, so I just I just wanted to notice. I appreciate you uh, recognizing that uh, it, it's it, that whole thing actually even grew out of uh, belief in our, our uh, natural accountability rather. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, one for me is our very first one that um, external corrections are uh, or internal corrections are longer lasting uh, than external corrections. Yeah, um, and and and. I love the way Ryan frames that because it's um, he, he frames it to mean that it's more it's more efficient and effective as opposed to better, you know, because what makes it better is that it's more efficient and effective. Uh, and, and that's terrific. Um, uh, for me, it's probably the conspiracy ratio. If I had to kind of dial into something that I like to talk to other teachers about or I like to talk to, you know, uh, leaders at my school about. And that is the notion that. The, the more it belongs to me as a leader, the less it can belong to anyone else. And, and so the application of that is that there's this kind of inverse proportionality. So if I'm in charge of what we're doing and I'm you know looking over everything that we're doing, then I've effectively pushed everybody else out. I've made it my thing and you're helping me do what I want all of us to do. And, and the less it's about me, the more it can be about my other people. The, the, the fundamental metaphor we use is if you're rowing a boat, the more I row the boat, the less you have to. <laughs> and so we also tease into that, I think, kind of an American trope about responsibility and agency. Like, you know, um, if I'm doing it, you don't have to. And so you, I'm basically incentivizing you to kick back and not take responsibility too. So if something breaks, you can't fix it. And it's also not your problem. It's my problem. Uh, you should come and check with me about how to fix it. And so then you get all these problems that come from, you know, the single person that is like the, the control locus point. So I, I love the conspiracy ratio. So uh, leading off of that, the one thing that you uh, do in one of the chapters that I was particularly intrigued by was the distinguishing between control and influence. And you said something earlier, Mike, about the mirroring of the leader-educator relationship to the uh, teacher-learner. Talk a little bit about the control-influence distingu uh, distinguishing that those two, and then... Um, Take us into that realm of teacher-learner and that whole thing and how that mirrors that. We all want influence, right? We, like when you ask somebody, do you want influence? Uh, everyone's, just about everybody's going to say yes to that, especially in a leadership position. Control is more tricky because, um, and Ryan can maybe speak to this a little better than I can um, because of the research he's done about it. But we claim we believe certain things, but then there's actually what we believe. And as we started in this conversation, when leaders tell people what to do, so to speak, th that's an act of control. Okay, I need you to be at this meeting at 310. And if you walk in at 312, I'm going to look at you funny. If you walk in at 317, I might even say to you, where were you? Um, that's a control relationship. Influence is, hey, I'm going to hold a meeting at 310. If you want to come, it'd be great if you were there. If you don't want to come because you got to do other things, have at it. And just that frame alone of the faculty meeting, um, my expectation, um, 
you meeting it because you have to be there versus you meeting it because you want to be there is massively different. And so we suggest that if you attend to influence, which is to say helping other people do what they are doing as opposed to control, which is getting you to do through a series of incentives or punishment, <laughs> but let's just call it what it is, right? Let's call that glaring eye a type of punishment. Let's, let's, let's call it what it is. That, that my attempts to control you are going to be a lot less effective than my attempts to influence how you are doing what you're doing. So that little simple piece, it's amazing how much when you hold yourself accountable, right? When you look at yourself and go, how much am I actually trying to just control people versus how much am I actually trying to influence people? It's a deep reflective process. And Ryan did his whole dissertation on reflective practice and about how that's the only way you're going to change your your process. So that's the first piece on control and influence. Ryan, I don't know how you want to jump into teacher learner, but I will tell you, you definitely are a teacher learner. Right? I, I should say a teacher leader um, and a learning leader. You know, so I don't know how you want to dive into that, but have at it, brother. Uh, have you all ever heard of like uh, Ignis Foutis or Fool's Fire? No. So, um, so this is uh, an example that uh, that uh, goes way back. Uh, Milton writes about this, you know, um, and it's this idea of folks trying to make their way through a uh, dark, mucky, you know, place, and all of a sudden they see a light that draws them off their path because it, it looks like maybe this is it, and they go and they mm -hmm. make their way to the light, and as they get there, it goes out. And they actually talk about how methane could come out of the earth that could create this, why why this was something that was in stories for such a long time. But I really think that our our um, desire to control people is fool's fire it's so tempting it looks like the right way to go we think we see the path so clearly and we can just go there and we can just do it i mean it's in our myths of like uh our, our desire for it it's it's james bond you know it's this idea of oh all this stuff's in my way but if i'm just strong enough i can i can just rock through all of that the the thing is when it comes to growing people um or even actually when it comes to anything, I think, but especially when it comes to helping people grow. Um, the, the mistake is we all grow ourselves. You can't change us. Anything you do to us will be interpreted by us and lead us to make a certain type of change. You can do things out, outside of us that we will react to, but we will, will be the ones that construct the meaning. You can't do this for us. Even at like the end of 1984, we're like, no, we're going to make you believe us. We will twist your back and crack your spine until you believe us shows you can't force that to happen. So once you recognize that everyone is, is responsible for accountable for themselves and their own growth, that they can only do it themselves, then you realize that your approach to them changes and hierarchies mess this up. Hierarchies mess this up in organizations. They mess this up in classrooms because it, it it is built off that bad assumption, that fool's fire of if I'm above you, I have the ability to change you. But that's not what it is. Um, and and as long as we uh, we resort back to I think those classical drivers of of coercion or rewards. Um, which, you know, uh, you probably heard about this with Daniel Pink and Drive talking about DC and Ryan's work with self-determination theory that for simple things, maybe you can get someone to work a little faster, stamping a thing and moving it along. If, you know, if you're going to make them scared enough, uh, but when it comes to actually growing and, and changing the way we think and what we believe and doing complex tasks, uh, they actually diminish our ability to help people. Um, and so we've come to think of every time uh, I think, for example, when I'm working with a teacher, I recognize that that time right there that is happening is a negotiation with how much 
uh, I am allowing that teacher to believe that I can actually be helpful to them. And if they think greater so, well, then I have a chance that something I say, they'll continue to, to think on. Even if maybe I say something that they go, oh, that doesn't sound right. If they've learned to trust me over time, they let it sit back, you know, in their mind so that as they're as they're dealing with new things that happen, they go, huh, that's interesting. You know, Mike and I talk about this all the time, that that uh, the the leaders who meant the most to us uh, that we haven't seen. And, you know, and now and, you know, over a decade, we still hear them in our minds when we're when we're trying to figure things out. But the folks that that, uh, you know tried to get there by telling you how to do it, by making you feel like you couldn't figure it out or by telling you you were wrong and they, you know, and you just have to do this. Well, the second they leave the door, they're gone, you know, and you're going back to whatever it was that you were doing. So we can't change people, but we can increase the degree to which we might be able to be influential to people as they continue to change themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm connecting that to sort of connection to and relationships and mindset. Um, as sort of those underlying factors that, you know, how much does that relationship and connection also influence sort of the open-mindedness or the willingness for that teacher or leader? You know, you're saying teacher, but really as mm-hmm. leaders, it's it's anyone we come in contact with, um, parents, um, you know, colleagues as well. So just making that connection and as, as I'm listening to you share your, your thoughts. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, We were actually just recently talking about this. We said if we could look for anything we would want to uh, help encourage or help people work toward, um, it would be uh, three things. One, um, that uh, with education uh, and helping people grow, you'll never get there. There'll always be a new challenge, uh, but you can continue to work toward to work toward that. Uh, Daniel Pink again says something similar in Drive. He says mastery is an asymptote, like you'll always get closer, but you'll never quite get there. The second thing is, uh, which came from uh, our reflection on uh, David Bohm's work with dialogue, is that other people give you a chance to recognize your blind spots because they will say something that makes you want to be like, "Mm," and just as you're about to tell them, instead of throwing it all out there or repressing it, suspend it. So you can think about what you think you're seeing against what these other people are seeing. So not that you necessarily will agree with them at the end, but you can share meaning. You can understand more fully the you know the terrain um, and everyone's perspective of it and then the third that once we see that our efforts are always toward what is our position in the problem because you can't change anyone else so all you can do is change what you are doing within yourself and your interactions with people uh, if you actually ever want to you know we talk about changing the world through other people um you know, what will we ever do ourselves? And and what part of us only has meaning with everyone around us? We start the book when we say no one is alone. Um, and I think all of the meaning we make even in our own lives is what we're able to do with each other. And if we want to be there for each other, if we want to be the best we can for each other, it starts by looking in at what we can do uh, and what people need from us and even understanding that. Um, it's one of the reasons like we have this false, we have this false sense of like this dichotomy of research and practice. Um, and how come we can't see more research and practice and why won't they hear and but don't they see we have the best evidence based uh, things and the thing is the research can be great. Some of it maybe not but a lot of it is great. The thing is, no matter how good something is doesn't matter until the person who activates it right uh, can make sense of it and in a thing like teaching. 
uh, where you have so many things that are going on at one time, where you're attending to maybe 20 or 30 people in front of you who all have their own needs. And, and you're taking all these things you've learned and you're experimenting and trying in real time with all these things going on. You can't, you can't just take something off a shelf and say, do this. And, and if you do, or if I as a leader make my people expect that that's my relationship with them to go around and check that they're doing that thing, A, that will never work. Um, and B, I've just made them believe that I can't be helpful to them and that they have to hide from me. They can't tell me how they really feel. They can't share what they're really. And then if that's the case, I now can maybe look okay on paper, look like I'm being really rigorous with the fidelity I require to the things that I've told them, but I've actually rendered myself useless to actually make any real change happen. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling that rendered myself useless and just appreciating the first person of that and just thinking like how many times have I rendered myself useless with bad behavior? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we it, it's behavior. a constant we slip into it all the time. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one of the one of my takeaways is this idea that we all have we all have agency and as a leader I have to be sure I don't violate somebody's agency. I have to not steal that away from them. But it's really hard to stop yourself from doing that because like you said earlier I have this idea. I know how to help you get there. Instead of creating the conditions whereby you own the agency, your own agency and you exercise that and you get there and make that meaning yourself. And the true right. art of leadership is designing that that you don't break that agency barrier and totally steal that from them. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, and it's the insidious nature of a hierarchy and yes. of the titles, Yeah, whether it's Mr. Cleaver in his classroom or Dr. O'Hara at his faculty meeting, our hierarchy, it, it's a pronation. You almost can't help it. It's, it's David Foster Wallace. This is water. You're in the water. You, you almost can't, it's so hard to fight against that pull of, well, my role here is to tell you what to do. My role here is to be the expert. My role here is to help you do what you're doing. And so let me tell you, <laughs> instead of being like, well, my role here is to listen to you and help you navigate your space that I can never enter, but can only be a visitor. Mm. And then the other trick is communicating that out, a thing we call contexting to all of the uh, stakeholders outside that um, might not have devoted their lives to understanding how we move people, right? And yet are important members of our community and have certain expectations about what leadership is and what accountability is and what that has to look like. Um, So it makes it even more important for those of us in in the hierarchy, um, if we actually want to change the way people feel about the, the people who are doing the work feel about um, their value and their ability to have agency and, and go after great things. We have to learn how to um, context for people outside so that we can make everyone feel comfortable with, yes, you know, um, there, there are uh, experts here attending to making sure that great things are happening for our children. Um, even if uh, even if the way they would expect that should happen is not the way it actually happens. We've been talking about this with like rigor, for instance, right? Um, a lot of times when we hear rigor used, when we talk about schools um, or with fidelity, it's like we've got an evidence-based program and uh, we're, we're going after it rigorously by making sure everyone does it just this way. I actually um, 
you know, I was uh, at Teachers College at Columbia University last year uh, at a principal's conference for the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, and Doug Reeves was there, and he was talking about fidelity to programs, and he showed a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis, and along the x-axis was like a level of fidelity to the program, and on the y-axis was student outcomes. And he said, we kind of thought going into this uh, study that we would kind of see like the greater the fidelity, the greater the outcomes, it would kind of just be, you know, directly proportional. He's like, what we found was that student outcomes remained very low until it got to full fidelity and then it took off. And unless I misunderstood him, it seemed that he was suggesting from that, that it meant that we just needed to require full fidelity. But of course, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking you can't require full fidelity, even from somebody who wants to give it to you because a program is the artifact of somebody else's reflection and thinking over experimentation over a long time. We say in our book, you can't hand your Stradivarius to somebody who doesn't play violin and expect beautiful music, right? What you need is the people to actually practice doing the work and experimenting and making sense. Then you can take somebody's evidence-based program, but they'll understand how to use it correctly. They'll understand what it means. If you tell them to do that before they've arrived at those understandings, then what you actually do is you tell them not to be responsive to what they see students doing. Ignore what students are doing and just do what the script says, which is actually far less rigorous work than the work of paying close attention to what you're seeing happens when you try to do something with someone, uh, you know, uh, with a student in the classroom and what you're getting back. Even a, a objective research of something is only as valuable as how it is interpreted and the conclusions that come from it. And so I would argue in this case, if I understood him correctly, that Doug Reeves' interpretation of that objective evidence was not going uh, to lead folks to do great things for teachers so that teachers could do great things for kids. You know, we hear all the time now about personalized learning, about student empowerment. Um, and it's so funny because we're asking teachers who in their profession have never been or rarely been empowered whose knowledge hasn't been often accepted as knowledge that's as worthy as, as folks from the academy. And then we expect them to translate things that we find out to kids when they've never actually had that experience themselves. Um, and that's the other trick is you can't begin to interrogate the incoherence between what you espouse, which is the latest thing you learned that is what's important and you can talk about, that incoherence with what your underlying assumptions about how things are until you're actually really engaged in figuring that work out. Um, Otherwise, that's why so often you can hear people at faculty meetings espouse one thing while they're not doing it at all. Mm -hmm. And then the teachers watch this incoherence and they say, well, holy goodness gracious, I can't trust this guy who gets up in front here. And I guess because he's got something he hangs on his wall. Now he can be in here and tell me this. He doesn't even see basic things that all the rest of us look at each other and see right now. That person loses the teacher's trust. That person renders themselves useless to be influential in the teacher's thinking when the teacher does have something. All right. Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts. In our season, uh, we have a series of rapid response questions. And the purpose of these questions is to uh, gather some more resources for our listeners so that they can learn more and um, find some rabbit holes to, to dig into. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. All right, excellent. Who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about effective school leadership practices? What really got me what really got me started on this work and and one name I just want to call out is uh, Lee Shulman. I read a book of his which was a, a collection of his essays called The Wisdom of Practice and um, 
And he had an essay in there about autonomy and obligation and what he called the myth, which kind of describes how we often think about teachers' place in professional learning. That uh, when I read, it was the first time I read something that I was like, oh my God, yes, here he's saying it. Um, and that got me started on, on this whole direction that Mike uh, and my conversation you know, began. Uh, and so I would say Lee Shulman, and they should take a look at the wisdom of practice. Uh, and uh, I would say, I don't know if you can do better than Dale Carnegie, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He's not still kicking it, but that is a crazy leadership book that will change how you look at everyone around you. And once you do that, actually, right, I think Mike and I would argue that the other experts that we're all missing are the folks in our building. Uh, our buildings are full of experts. They really are. And um, and once we begin to treat them that way, uh, we unleash uh, and can unleash, I think, tons of potential um, that will even make it possible for everyone to go back to people like Dale Carnegie or early Shulman and make more sense of them because they'll be actually engaged themselves in working to figure things out with the experts around them. We'll be more we'll be more rapid on the next questions. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you hit the first two, so double double time, double points there. Um, so next question, last question: What online site, resource, or person do you learn from regularly? I'm a big fan of Jack Butcher's Twitter feed. I think that he's really something. I would encourage people to check that out. He thinks as an entrepreneur, and um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, is putting a lot of things out. His last book, um, conversations with strangers or talking with strangers. Um, it's really great. His podcast is really terrific. I check it out. Um, nearly every day I listen to him, but check him out. I'll just say one thing I started doing that I hadn't done before. And I'm like, Oh, why haven't I been doing this all along is a lot of the folks that I've met through books. Um, I realize I can just go on to, uh, you know, YouTube or Ted and I find them talking and I found it's really fun to see how they present what they say and then go back and look at what they've written again and, and think about how they highlight things. Um, so I, I'd recommend doing that. All right. Last question, gentlemen, what's on the radar for both of you? What, what are you working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? We are uh, putting this book out, putting other full out uh, has really opened up a lot of uh, new opportunities for us. And <clears throat> we're now working with uh, teachers and conversations with administrators and school districts uh, around the country. And we're really excited about this direction we're heading in because there are conversations much like this that we turn into seminars and talks and workshops. Um, and so we're doing something with the Midwest Leadership Summit in Cincinnati in uh, coming up in the spring. Um, we're both going to be attending South by Southwest EDU. Um, uh, and we're, we're, we're putting things out there that are about engaging teachers and administrators in the great work of building better relationships, uh, working together, sharing that agency, and looking at leadership as an opportunity to lift other people up so other people can do the great work. So that's been very exciting for us. We've also been uh, joining uh, quite a few uh, leadership courses uh, that are looking at the book now and and uh, and talking to future uh, educational leaders there, particularly in the New York, Long Island area, which has been great. And uh, and as Mike said, you know, we really espouse this idea of uh, cultivating the leadership that you already have with you um, and and realizing that what's outside will be helpful um, to you even more so once you've really uh, generated the uh, momentum inside. And so uh, we're also we're also, um, as you know, we're both at work now, we're both we're both uh, busy still doing the work as, as, as both of you are. Um, we're trying to uh, use this to guide uh, reaching out between other districts to look at how can we 
how can we continue to do the work of of uh, really promoting um, the talent at home. Well, thanks so much for talking with us this morning, Mike and Ryan. It's been a pleasure to um, hear about your work and uh, your beliefs about leading and learning and your collaboration with each other and those experts within your uh, school system. To learn more about Mike's and Ryan's work, you can check out uh, the show notes. You'll see some links there, um, all the great books they recommended and resources. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, based on our conversations today, what aspects of your leadership practice are you thinking about? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode 21. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders Thanks again, Mike and Ryan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.